Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. If you're my regular listeners, welcome back. And if you are new, I'm so delighted that you found us. I'm Clarissa Christensen, and today we're going to talk about shame. That's a big, fat word, if ever there was one. And something that I think many of us going through perimenopause, menopause, can experience. And so I'm really delighted today to have with me a guest, Kira Weckett. She is a mental health therapist, facilitator, and creator, and she has spent 10 years in the space of mental health. And shame is one of her you know, leading topics. So welcome to the show, Kira. Oh, thank you. I'm Honestly, I, that was the biggest thing I was excited to wake up and do this morning was this show. So thanks for having me. I thought about it too. And I was like, I am so glad Kira is here. I am so looking forward to talking about this because it comes up so much. And yet it comes up as a word, but then what does it mean and how do we deal with it? So maybe that's a great place to start, Kira, is from your perspective as a mental health expert, what is shame. I love this starting point of clarification because I think so often when we are talking about any hard topic, we jump in assuming a shared knowledge. So really getting us all on the same page, at least for the conversation today. So shame is an emotion, meaning it is something that we all experience. We are meant to experience. And if it's not dealt with effectively, properly, in whatever that means for each of us individually, it can consume us the same way that any other emotion can if we try to suppress, repress, avoid in any way. Shame specifically is a subset of fear. So fear is any sort of threat to our survival, our livelihood. It kicks off this cascade in our brain. Shame specifically is a specific type of threat, meaning a threat to connection and belonging. And what we know is that we all need belonging to survive. We cannot survive without connection and belonging in the world. So shame has become this dominant force that we're all experiencing in astronomically high levels because we haven't talked about it for so long. And it's basically our body's conditioned threat to assume any possible vulnerability, any instance of ambiguity, any uncertainty, any possible failure, anything where we're not meeting the criteria that we have assumed we have to meet in order to be worthy is a threat to connection and belong. I have to say is the best explanation I have ever heard. <laughs> I knew it was an emotion, <laughs> but the way you explain that as being a subset of fear, I think really, for me, really clarifies for the listeners, many of whom are female, but shame is for everybody, mm -hmm. why we feel so unable to share that the shame we have about particularly, I think, about the hard stuff our and our bodies in particular. And why I think, too, if we really break it down and we talk about how the fear brain works, it is completely separate from logic and reasoning. So I think the other thing that we do and that is often put on us is we shame ourselves for not effectively dealing with shame. We shame ourselves for not effectively dealing with fear. But what we're missing is that when fear gets turned on, this part of our brain turns off. So we are reacting to these threats. And so we can talk about it. We can decondition that response. And 
going back and shaming ourselves for how we handled something or feeling bad about something or thinking about all the ways that we are trying to grieve and heal from when we talk about menopause or any sort of life change, we inadvertently create more shame because we're expecting we should know how to handle it. But the reality is our brain is just doing what it thinks it can to survive and come out of this threat and be okay. Yeah. And, and I think the thing with shame on top of that is that it goes on for such a long time. It's, it's not something I feel ashamed about the fact that I, in this stage of life, and that's right. okay in one incidence, this has started, I don't know, we'll talk in a minute about where it comes from, but this is not a, a it, one fear, I'm afraid of flying or being up at high, which is I am, I'm terrified of heights. Right. But when I'm not at heights, I'm not there. And so I don't have that. Right. But shame is, it's ingrained, isn't it? It's part of almost becomes part of our response to the world. Yeah, I almost think about it as if, because a lot of the discussions I have with people early on is the difference between guilt and shame as well, and being something that we do that maybe we're not okay with or triggers a response, but there's an essence of control and there's an essence of resolve. We can choose to pick it up. We can choose to respond. Shame is really like a cloak that has been embedded into our skin. And so it does come with us every day. And when we're talking about whether or not we feel worthy of love and connection, all of us can at least, if we're being honest with ourselves, the thoughts that are running in the background all the time are introducing doubt to that worthiness and connection from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, if not throughout our dreams and our sleep and all of that as well. Yeah, very pervasive as an emotion. Yes. But talking, I would talk about what it means and, and and I love that difference as well between guilt and shame. Because, yeah, we feel guilt when we've chowed down a great big chocolate cake that we're not supposed right. to or, or said something that's not very nice to someone. You're right, that passes and you can say sorry and you can move on. But you know, shame, where does it begin? Where does it particularly begin for women who seem to, I think, have an exceptional shame burden with? So I think universally... Shame is developed as a form of protection for the beliefs that we have about ourselves. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a term called core beliefs. More generally, the term has been used as limiting beliefs. The idea, though, is that when we're born, from the time that we are born, we're forming our sense of self in the world and starting to paint a picture for who we are, our place in the world, how we show up and what it means to belong for point zero zero zero, zero, three percent of the population, that belief is I'm inherently worthy of love and connection simply by being born. The rest of us, the majority of the world, and this is independent of culture, this is independent of location, geography, we are born with the belief that we have to act, look, be, present a certain way in order to be lovable and worthy. So this starts with caregivers expecting or conditioning certain responses of what's good behavior versus not good behavior. When we get around friend groups, peers, how are we supposed to act to fit in? So there's this conditioning that starts to happen from early on. And this lays the foundation for us that says, okay, so I am not inherently good enough, but here's a system that says, if I do this, if I perform at this level, then I'm good enough. Then there's a bit of relief there because it feels like most of us, when we think about wanting to be in control, wanting to know the answer, it's okay, here's the answer. Do this and everything's going to be fine. Shame gets tethered to that 
because we're never going to be able to do it all at all times. We're never going to be able to adhere to the ever-changing rules and systems of what it means to belong. And then when we think about our brain working to protect us, shame gets burst out of saying, okay, every time you get too close to not meeting a certain rule, every time you get too close to being seen, somebody's going to find you out for being unworthy, for what all these beliefs we think. Shame comes in and it thinks it's being helpful. And that's the really key yeah. part is, it does think it's helping us. Shame is meant to protect us. It's just protecting us at times that it's actually a hindrance to our progression and our advancement and our ability to be vulnerable in the world. Yeah. And I think when you say that, it makes me ask a question around shame is culturally defined, but how much does, for example, the role of epigenetics, your yes. the sort of sense play in that? Yes. And I think there's there's still such early research on shame and because it's something that is often a subjective experience and requires people to communicate with that, it's hard to study it effectively. What we do know is that it can look different in different cultures. So body shame in certain cultures might look different than others, but at its core, everyone experiences some degree of body awareness and oftentimes some body scrutiny. My body doesn't look a certain way. It doesn't act a certain way, perform a certain way. So I think what we look at is at the core, again, of all humans need love and connection, which means all humans face the threat to love and connection. It just presents very differently for me in Portland, Oregon versus somebody in another country. And we see that. And, and, and I think that's right. It's the same need to be loved and connected. It's just... It manifests differently. We don't have possibly the same, and I only say possibly the same levels of shame today around, say, our menstruation that a previous guest of mine who came from Nepal and said, when I was nine, I realized that I wasn't worth anything and I yep. wasn't lovable because I wasn't a boy. And so I wanted to take my own life. I don't think we quite feel that level of shame about that, but that's only because we have maybe changed a bit culturally along those lines. At the bottom is still the need to be loved and our inability to talk about these things. Yeah. And you alluded to this specifically around women, but if we think about it, it's marginalized identities in, and the degree of marginalization and scrutiny in different cultures. So the person from Nepal, that degree and severity of scrutiny for being a woman, the lack of safety, the lack of any sense of security in the self, but in the world is very different. And what we do see is that this is happening for different identities and populations. Again, while severity and acuity might look different, the base feeling of I'm not good enough unless this. And in some cases, it leads someone to get to a point of saying, so then I shouldn't be here. For many of us, what it leads us down is this rapid hole of I have to chase getting to a point where I deserve to be here. And that's, we lose ourselves in both sides. Yeah. And I think we see some of that playing out today, probably in transgender people, mm -hmm. non-binary people, even LGBTQ who are then more marginalized within our society because some of them can be perimenopausal and then they don't know how to and are not met with the empathy and care, even within the medical profession. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You alluded there to changing rules, which is something I think is interesting because obviously I, perimenopause 
introduces in its own way a new set of rules from a societal perspective. How does that potentially play out from a shame perspective? I think two things that are in particular for talking about moving towards menopause, so perimenopause, menopause, there, I would say the onset of the changing rule system and the fear-based system happens well before that's even on the table or close to coming because we're, it's almost like this threat that's looming in the distance that we're aware of that is constantly saying these things are going to happen to you. I'm in my 30s. I already have internalized beliefs about what it's going to mean about me when I get to that stage of life and fears about what that's going to be. And so we are, I think, faced with how do we prolong something as long as possible, because what it's been conditioned to us is that this is a notch down. This is something bad. This is something that's going to happen to you that you have no control over. That's terrible. As opposed to it being framed as a neutral body evolution, a neutral thing that happens to us that has good, bad, and mostly neutral things and changes if we can view it that way. But I think what happens is each year that we get older, each step that we get closer towards these life changes and transitions, we're then faced with, again, how do I do everything to avoid, pretend, suppress, but then how do I present as the model person going through whatever that life stage is? And that's where I think we see these messages that we've been indoctrinated with about basically how to be the number one in going through menopause, do this, make your skin look this way, deal with this. What, and we had a conversation offline when we first met around yeah, that's where marketing messages get you. And yeah, and it's okay if you do hormone replacement therapy, if you do these things, but what it does is it takes the opportunity for people to assess those things for their own story and it makes it a should and a supposed to. So now the place of choice is externally driven as a survival tactic versus internally driven as writing the story of what's right for me. Yeah, and I think that is such a key point because right now I have never seen so much polarizing camps and language as is going on. There have been reports and articles coming out that use words like disability and depletion. Mm -hmm. They are strong emotions. I've been strong pushing back and saying they're not appropriate. But if you are already maybe shaming yourself for being here and struggling, yeah. that kind of language has far bigger impact, doesn't it, on your own sense of self than if we said, this is a natural transition. Sure, it can be tough. You've got this and we've got this with you. Well, and I think part of the issue too is, so even remembering getting, like starting your menstrual cycle and the shame that comes with that. And I'm relating this back to this idea of then either you have to be, you have to see everything as amazing or it's all terrible. It's this very binary viewpoint of it. I think what happens too is well-intentioned as it might be, sometimes the responses become a form of toxic positivity. Because the other thing is, it's not all amazing. It's not all great. It's the same thing that I talk very openly about being a mom. And granted, she's going to be too. I'm very new to this stage of parenthood. But what does it mean to, to be pregnant, to have had a kid, to be a parent? It isn't all good or all bad. But I think we don't have honest conversations that allow the in-between, the 98%, not the 100, not the zero or the one, but everything in between. And I think when we talk about this, there's this belief of you have to pick a side or pick a camp or do these things. And then you have to stick to this set of existence versus saying, 
I actually see both sides or most times I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle and I don't know the answer. I'm just responding to the body and the soul and the mind that I have today and doing the best I can. And we take away the freedom of, I think, connecting to ourselves and evolving because it becomes this pick a path and do it, which again, then we just stick it out as opposed to allow that reflection and change and evolution internally. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing that binary camp and, and that you're right, is making people take sides, even when their argument isn't even, then it comes to, it becomes really fear-based when people say things like, if you don't have hormone therapy, you're going to die. Well, yeah. you know, I'm like, we're all going to die, but right. you know, and right. I, yeah, yeah, right. But now we've now pulled ourselves so far into this, this camp because that is where we now are placed and we are going to say these things. And yet if we stopped for a moment and, and could use our logical brain, mm -hmm. we think that except for a very small minority of people who clearly have severe depressive right behavior and there are people like that and they have taken their own lives and that's a tragedy absolute tragedy but for the majority that becomes a problem then well i think there's i'm starting to have conversations again with my two-year-old who's starting to understand it's really fascinating to see again how shame is this innate experience because she experiences and watching how you can see her do something that maybe someone we've talked about not doing and then she immediately feels what I've come to see is shame it's not guilt it's not a productive feeling for her she will shut down she will feel this threat and she doesn't want to talk to me she doesn't want to come around me she is afraid and you can see it in her and I think then and we've had conversations where I'll say oh did this happen and, and no matter how I approach it no matter how open I am she will have to stick with it didn't happen it didn't happen it didn't happen that's a defense in the brain to try to survive this shame-based experience so I think as we get older, our methods of communicating just become a little bit more advanced, but at their core, they're the same defenses coming out. So then when people take these very intense stances or almost shame other people who don't make those same choices or defend their choices at all costs, what I like to do is to step back and to realize, oh, that person's in a state of shame. Because the reality is when we're in our logic brain, most of us, again, not everyone, most of our brains have the capacity to admit up to ourselves, there's very few things we actually know the answer to. And so when we try to take the state that we know the answer, there's something connected to shame. There's something connected with needing to be right, needing to have the answer to make themselves feel okay, to feel a sense of peace. Yeah. And it, yeah, you're right. And that sort of that gray area can feel scary. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is the right choice for me. I'm making the best choice that I think, or I'm afraid of death. And the idea that this is something that could prevent it or prolong it or whatever the belief is that this person has, being able to own that, but for their own experiences, for their own fears, for their own worries, rather than projecting it onto other people to say, no, if you don't do this, you will die. When that is not only unfounded and dangerous to some people who might be more emotionally or mentally susceptible and vulnerable, but it's not actually communicating anything helpful because you are not sharing your true story. You're shaming other people into living your story. Yeah, I, I love that summation of it. And I think that's very prevalent here. And it, it affects everything, doesn't it? The way we think, act, feel, and the conversations that we have. Yeah. 
And I think that's the key piece that's missed a lot is I often call them band-aid solutions, but I think so much of the way that we are given support in dealing with things is how to treat a symptom of distress rather than disentangle the whole web and the system that's gotten us here in the first place. Because it doesn't start the moment that somebody is in a state of menopause or starting their transition. We've been feeling it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Since we were two, three, four, five, it's just a new iteration of it. And I think that's the thing that if we could understand that, create that universality around it, it actually allows such greater connection whether it's talking to somebody who's not experiencing the same transition or the same things that you've experienced, there is a rooting. Again, go back to when we talked about shame across cultures. There is a shared experience there. And if we can get there, that's where we can actually respond to what do we need? What is the fear? What is the threat? What is going on right now? And what would it look like for your brain to let that go? Yeah, which is a very different way because menopause, of course, isn't a separate entity of our life it it started I think for a lot of women you're right men were very small but it I think and I love your your, viewpoint on this but it often starts when we start to menstruate and and we come through this and suddenly our body is different and we carry I don't know a huge burden of cultural shame as we've said and then it menopause is really the culmination of this well and I think it's I even there is a article written, I can't remember when this was, I'll have to find it, see if I can send it to you, but it was talking about people in the U.S. in particular, but menopause in the workplace and systems of protection. And I know this is something that you've talked about before and seeing what companies are doing and and what they're not doing. But one of the discussions by somebody in response to this was, we've been feeling shame like you said, since we got our periods. So I remember the, if anything happens, you don't want anyone to know you have it. You have to hide everything at all costs. Don't tell anybody you have this thing going on. What happens when you're a kid and you're first learning your body? Or in my 30s and after having a kid and my body's different and I am learning what it means now to have a cycle that is totally different from what I experienced. And the shame that I have felt around that because I feel like I don't have the system to to deal with it effectively yet. So then if you have a leak or you have something like that, or you're moody or you're this, it's like, I have to hide all of that because I'm supposed to be able to have this together. I'm supposed to be able to navigate this. So there's this, we don't just normalize the bodily experience of it. I see a lot of women in my therapy practice that have a different iterations, but if it is any sort of like premenstrual dysphoric disorder or things like this, where they don't want to tell anybody about this experience because they're worried that they're just going to be called too emotional and you're just being whatever these words are that we've all heard. And I think menopause is another example of that, of you're supposed to have all the answers to this changing body that you're getting to know that's affecting the way that you think, that's affecting your mood, your sense of security in yourself, your body's changing. It's now this not foreign, but foreign body. It's so much And it feels very lonely because we aren't talking about it in a way that is, again, open and curious. We're talking about it as here's the solution, pick this and figure it out so that everyone can go about their day. 
Yeah, yeah. I, and I like that sense of curiosity and staying open to other people's experiences and your experiences and being able to share those. And that is actually a very vulnerable space to be in, isn't it, Kira? Oh, absolutely. And I've actually thought about this. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and I said, so my daughter has, of course, loves to explore things and she's going in and she sees different feminine hygiene products and it's okay. So how do I have this conversation with her and talking about these things at such a young age? And my girlfriend, I think the biggest thing we can do is just talk about it the same way you would talk about hunger and fullness cues, or we're playing with a new toy, just make it a thing that isn't a thing. And maybe that's the start of it not becoming something we feel like we have to hide because that's where it is. I think it's the loaded sense of the conversation. It's why nobody wants to talk about anything related to menstruation or menopause. Again, unless like you, you start to feel like you have to, and you get in these camps of thinking and, and advocacy that are unintentional shaming or maybe an attempt to self-soothe that is off-based. Yes, yes. Really hard conversations. And I think we can have them, but it doesn't it take a lot of, a lot of courage and, and our ability to hold space for others to have that conversation. Yeah, which I think, and I've thought about this a lot, just with the world, the way that it is now, I think so many of us go into conversations assuming we know the other side rather than being curious about the other side. And so I think even if we're talking about connection for people in this stage of transition in life, what would it be like to go into an interaction and not assume that you understand somebody else's experience or project onto them and assume that you know what they're going to say back to you about yours? What if we allowed the conversation to take place naturally? And if it goes as poorly as you assume it's going to go, then you can deal with it then. But I think we are, we're coming in with these shame stories that become almost like tension points against each other because we can't connect when our walls are up before we've even sat down. Yeah. Yeah. And I, don't, and I think that's as much woman to woman or female to female body to female body yeah. as it is women to men. So I sometimes think we think it's something to do between the genders, but it's actually between anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a lot about just helping because the ego is really deeply embedded in and connected to our shame. And it's really thinking about ego just wants to make sure that we feel seen. It gets off base because it doesn't have, again, the higher functioning ways to do it. But how do we make sure that we set ourselves up to know that we are seen and safe? And we have the ability to make others feel seen and safe and be okay when those storylines don't line up the way that you hoped they would or expected that they would. Yeah. And I think the point you've made here is so important as we begin to see menopause being discussed in workplaces, which you and I have had a bit of off-base <laughs> conversations about because that is incredibly hard, even if you train people about what it is or whatever. If people can't have those conversations, it doesn't necessarily make it better to have a policy in place and to train. Right. And how many and I, times are we, you know, putting policies in place to say that we're doing something and yet it becomes a measure to avoid the actual doing that needs to be done? Yeah. And that's not teaching people to hold that curious open space, really. I think you can teach somebody about this is the symptoms and this is what to expect. But if you can't sh make that shift, then 
Are we, yes, you said it becomes a policy that you can just tick a box on, but people don't necessarily find themselves. Yeah. After the initial, well, we've got this and we've got an award. How does that play out long-term for, for people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the areas I know you talk about is shame resiliency and how we can actually, what is that and how does that help people to overcome or find a better way to connect the, the more logical brain to the emotion and the fear that we feel? I think, so whenever we feel a threat. So think about you're watching a scary movie or something happens and you feel fear. We have that fight, flight, or freeze response that gets kicked up in our brain. Shame activates a very similar response. It's a reaction to what has happened. And so when people talk about how do we deal with shame or even as the term shame resilience came about, I think a lot of the expectation was around how do we get rid of shame and never experience it again? How do we conquer it? How do we overcome it? And it comes up all the time when people say, conquer your fears. And I think that is the worst lie and an unhelpful view about fear. Because again, we're going to experience it. So why not think about how we work with it more effectively? So shame resilience is really knowing how do I get clear on when I feel shame What triggers me to feel that shame? Who are the people? Again, we go back to those four things that you noted, thinking, feeling, talking, and acting. What are the the trigger points for me? Are there certain people? Are there certain experiences? Are there certain things that happen that trigger shame in me? And how do I get curious about my go-to response? So there are three main ways that we respond. We either move towards people, which basically means how do I take care of everybody else, make it about everybody else? This is oftentimes what we have found that people that identify as female or were raised female or raised with more of like feminine ideals or womenly ideals is to take care of everybody else at your own expense. So this is a big response pattern that we see. So it's, okay, just make yourself smaller, take care of everybody else, do all the things, be perfect, don't have a need, don't have anything going on. The other two reactions come up for us all in different ways. The next one is moving away, which basically means we shut down. We avoid, we don't talk about anything. Most of us do this typically after we've exhausted option one. We get to a point where we've burnt ourselves out and then we just disconnect. And then the third option is called moving against, which means I'm feeling shame. It's almost like when you think about an animal kind of being cornered or caged in and they react very intensely. It's the body's attempt to try to recalibrate and find equilibrium. So we fight shame by making somebody else feel shame. That's where the anger comes into play. It's where the meanness comes into play. However you react when you feel shame, the goal is to just start to become aware of it and get curious around it and start talking, start noticing, huh, when you said that, I felt immediately like my skin started to boil and I just wanted to jump at you. I wonder what's happening there. I wonder what's going on. I wonder why that felt so intense. And then the long-term goal is to get to the point where we can recognize when it's happening, but almost like a freeze frame, we can pause long enough to allow our fear brain to feel it, to validate it, and then come back down from it so we can turn our logic and reasoning brain back on and say, this happened. It makes sense that we felt this threat and we are safe and open. Someone comments on your body changing. Whew, makes sense I felt that way because I've been told that if my body doesn't have this size, this look, is this skin color, is this whatever it is, yes. that I am broken and wrong. That makes sense that I felt that threat. And right now, 
I am safe and okay. Yeah. That makes such logical sense to think like that. And it's quite similar to, I think, what I've heard spoken in terms of anxiety as well. Yes. Yes. It's really about how do you just get to know yourself and then increase the time from stimulus to response. That's really the goal is just to help the brain not react so intensely. Again, if we go back to my two-year-old, I'm not going to stop her from having those big, intense emotions. That's her job. My job is to try to make space for her to process what she's feeling so she can react to it in a way or respond, maybe I should say, respond to it in a way that isn't destructive to her or to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what I call a mindful gap. It's a nanosecond. It's a nanosecond. But in that little tiny moment, you have a choice to respond one way or the other. I love that term. I've never heard that before. A mindful gap. That's, I love that. I think that's a Buddhist thing. I think in Buddhism, they, they say you have the sensation and then you can choose this path, which is the path of pain, or you can mm-hmm. choose the, the Buddha's path. And so I suppose that's where I learned it, but it, it, it's the same thing. And, and, and in therapy. Yeah. I mean, how do people do that? Do they go into therapy? in order to learn this kind of approach or mindfulness or what kind of practices or support can people have to learn to deal with and be better able to give themselves that that space? Yeah, I think obviously I believe in therapy or I wouldn't be a practicing therapist. <laughs> I think that we're very aware that accessibility to mental health treatment at the needs and the level and the type of support that people need we just aren't there yet. So whether that is a trained therapist, whether that is some other form of healer, it's something that I think if we put it out there in a way of get to talk to somebody, there are just too many people that aren't going to be able to do that in a way that's effective. And I think stepping it back to thinking what's accessible to all of us, it doesn't mean it's not scary and hard and overwhelming and that we might not find ourselves needing that additional support. But what becomes accessible for us kind of day to day is we start having to shift that conversation to getting curious about ourselves. And so really thinking about pockets of mindfulness are key. Just noticing, scanning the body and saying, what am I telling myself right now? So I do, I call it a thought dump. Every single time that I notice myself getting very scattered, or if I feel that reactivity, one of those shame defenses coming in, what's happening in my brain? And there, and I'll send some resources that we can put in the show notes as well, some worksheets for people that I think start to kind of anchor this process a little bit more. But what we know long-term is the best way to combat shame is to talk because shame only grows in silence. It's an internal narrative. All of us are stuck in our own shame stories, even though we all experience it. Every one of us is connected to our own very specific story. So if we can talk about it and I can tell you that I had this shame because of X, Y, and Z, and you can go, oh, that just makes you human. That's okay. And normalize that. Oh, and you can tell me this thought that you had. Somebody made a comment. So you went to the rabbit hole of you're the worst person ever. You're failing as a partner, a parent or caregiver, entrepreneur, whatever it is that we think we're failing in. Somebody can help us reframe it to say, maybe it's not that intense. So talking about it really does allow that shift. Obviously, the key thing there is that you have people that are safe to do that with. So if that's not the case for people where they feel like they have it in their community right around them, 
than finding forums, whether it's a podcast like this, or even just hearing two other people talk, there's a universality we're creating in our vulnerability to allow other people to feel that sense of empowerment. And so finding the podcast, finding the groups, getting connected in some way, shape or form, I think can be incredibly helpful. And then again, really starting to think about once we know our triggers, being honest with ourselves about what ability we have to shift them. Because sometimes also I think it's being able to say, there's not much I'm going to be able to do about certain circumstances. Like when we talk about cultural oppression, you yourself might not change that from being part of your reality. You can be a part of the voice to make a change, but the shame you're going to feel is still specific to you and is still going to exist. So then we think about what avenues of protection, what avenues of support, what avenues of response can I create so it doesn't feel so lonely? Yeah, I really like that because then you just, you're taking on the things that you have the ability to manage right. and not the total, as you said, universality of it. And it really makes me think of a previous guest on here, Rachel Weiss. She's also a therapist. And she started something called Menopause Cafes, which are now rolling out around the world. And it's awesome because basically there are no agendas, no experts, no clinicians. People come and they talk openly, freely, and supportively with a coffee and a cake. I've been doing more stuff online. And people walk away from there and say, gosh, I'm not alone. And I'm not going crazy. Yeah. And that, I think, is a huge step forward Mm -hmm. in this space. So I'd say to the listeners, if there's a menopause cafe near where you live, where you want to find out more, you can check out that episode. We put some more information because that that kind of aligns with what Kira is saying here. Absolutely. Being able to talk. Yeah. And I think I've run so many different support groups, whether it's from a peer-based perspective or a therapist perspective. Most recently I have, I run a support group for college students with body image disordered eating disorders. Sometimes we don't even talk about any of those things, but there's a connection that's built just by coming to a space where you know by entering the room you share in this experience. And that alone, even if all you talked about was your new semester in classes, there's this connection that's created. So I think finding any place like that, that sets it up right up front. The people walking into the space, regardless of the conversation coming in, that there's connection that's guaranteed. And that helps us be able to be a little bit more vulnerable versus going into a, you know, the mall and trying back when the world was open, but going to just try to find somebody to talk to because the, the work has been done to filter in that safety for you. Yeah, that is wonderful. Kira, I love talking. I love this is a subject you can talk about forever, really, because it's such a big thing in everybody's life. But how can people find out more about the work you do, connect with you? I would just say that anybody that wants to connect again, if we go back to this idea of just building connection, to send me an email. So if you go to my website, adversityrising.com, just go to the connect section Let's set up a time to chat, talk about what support looks like for you, whether that's with something that I do with things outside of me, the menopause cafes, any other resources that we can connect people to. I think that one of the things that I really have a lot of fun with and build a lot of connection with people that 
like or connect to what I'm saying is through my email newsletter. So you can sign up for that right on my website as well, but I'll send a link that we can put in the show notes if people want to go there directly. I think the biggest thing that I have found when it comes to both being a person and a professional that experiences and understands mental health and stress and shame is again, really realizing that the only way to come through this is to build more connection and community. And yeah, however somebody wants to connect or I can support and connect people, I just, I welcome that in all aspects. I love that. And I wholeheartedly kind of just (laughs) endorse that because connection is a key aspect of our mental health. It's a key aspect of going through menopause well. And it's very important for aging well. And whether we like it or not, menopause is one step on that journey. And we know all the blue zone work, all of these things have always shown that our health and well-being is predicated on the strength of our connections and how safe we are and able to share our experiences and feel connected to others. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Kira, to have you on the show and to share this. And I know that many of my listeners will have really gained value for it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited we had this conversation today.